Well, good morning again. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. And if you're visiting this morning, welcome. We're glad to have you with us. Uh, we're in a series right now, short series, on the first few chapters of the book of 2 Corinthians. And you'll find that if you're using one of the Pew Bibles uh, on page 965, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. It's in the New Testament. Again, page 965. If you're just joining us, uh, this series in 2 Corinthians, we're, we're talking about uh, trusting, trusting the sufficiency of God. Trusting the sufficiency of God, that God is sufficient for us. And, and even use that word sufficient is um, insufficient, maybe. Because when we, when we hear that, maybe we tend to think like just barely enough to provide or just, just enough to get us over, uh, over the edge. Well, when Scripture speaks and when Paul speaks here in 2 Corinthians and uses that word, when he speaks of, being God, speaks of God being sufficient, he is saying that God is all that we need, every bit of it to care for the needs of our life. And we're looking at different angles on that, these... Uh, few weeks. So um, this morning, again, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump right in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you indeed are sufficient for us, not barely enough, but um, that you are abounding in all that we need. God, we pray this morning as we come to your word that you would open our, uh, our eyes and our ears, that you'd wake up our sleepy hearts, uh, that they might attend to you. Would you show us your goodness, your care for us? We ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1-6. through six. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord, and it's given to us for our good and for his glory. Uh, let me start with this. Let me ask a question. <clears throat> do, you believe, do you believe that God still saves people? I mean, that, that he still uh, breaks into the lives of those who don't know him and opens blind eyes so they can see. That he comes to people who are spiritually dead and, and brings them back to life. Do, do you believe that he still does that? Okay, let me ask you this. We have good theology, right? Now, let me ask you this. Do you believe that he is still interested in doing that in, in the lives of people who don't know Christ that you know, your family, your friends, your coworkers? Do you, do you believe not only that he wants to do it, but that he's actually still about the business of doing stuff just like that? Or how about this one? Do you believe that he might really use our church to bring the hope of the gospel to people who don't know Jesus in Williamsburg in this area? Like, do you think he 
would really be interested in doing that and really does do it. Sometimes um, churches get various reputations, and ours in one sense has been, maybe from without, but from within, has been, you know, some churches are really good at, at reaching people who don't know Christ and them coming to faith, and other churches are really good at, like, helping people grow up in their faith. And we're like a, a part B church. We're, we're a church that's really good at helping people grow in their faith but not really come to faith. And, like, God's got sort of, you know, uh, two tools. He's got one in his right hand, one in his left hand. Or does he mean for all his churches to be both of those things? That we would be a, a church not only where people might grow in faith, but where they might actually come to faith, that he might actually use it. Do you, do you think he's interested in doing that? We have trouble sometimes believing that he might really do that with us as a church or maybe as individuals. Um, but what Paul says to us this morning is that God is sufficient to save that he is still about the business of saving. He has all that it takes to do that work. If you know Christ, he has done it in your life, and he wants to do it in the lives of those around you as well. Are we willing to be expectant for ourselves and for the church that we would really see that happen? Because that's our point this morning, that God is sufficient to save. We're going to see three aspects of that this morning. We're going to see the veil, the light, and the freedom that Paul speaks about as he tells us that God is sufficient to save. Okay, first, the veil. Um, we've mentioned that Paul in, in 2 Corinthians is addressing critics who have been uh, basically pointing to him and saying, look at Paul, his, uh, his ministry is a shambles, he's always struggling, people are always throwing him in prison. He's, you know, how could these kinds of hard things happen to somebody who was really a true apostle of God? They looked at all his struggles and said, surely God is not at work with him. And one of the things that they were bringing up against him and that's hinted at here is uh, basically this. You know, the, the, his critics were uh, people from a Jewish background who had named the name of Christ, who proclaimed faith in Christ, but also believed you had to keep all the Old Testament law. You essentially had to be Jewish while being a Christian. And Paul very much was against that idea. And so they, they are looking at Paul and saying, look, his own people, the Jews, aren't listening to what Paul said. How could he possibly be speaking the truth? Maybe you know from the book of Acts or other places in Scripture, when Paul would go to a new city, uh, most often he would go to the local synagogue. He'd go uh, to a Jewish synagogue and he'd begin to preach there. And if they did not receive his word, he'd go then and preach to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, and tell them about Christ. And so these guys are looking and saying, look, his own people have turned away. How could he actually be speaking the truth? And Paul has to answer their objection. Now, in his context, it was uh, questions coming up about Jewish people people who would not believe him, but he was rejected by the Gentiles as well. And the question for us is, is really the same question. There are people that, that hear about Christ, that hear the claims of Christ, and they, they don't believe it, and they don't turn to faith. So does the gospel not have any power, and why is that the case? Well, Paul's answer in his context and his answer in ours was this. He says, when that happens, that shows that there is a veil over their hearts, that is keeping the light of Christ out so that they cannot hear the gospel, so that they will not grab a hold of it, so that they will not turn. He says there is something that is hanging over all our hearts apart from Christ that keeps Christ out and keeps our hearts in darkness. Uh, there's a game that my kids play around the house, uh, and they, what they do is they'll blindfold themselves or, or just shut their, their eyes really tight, and they'll, they'll put their arms out in front of them, and they'll... Their, uh, their object is to sort of make it all the way down the center hall in our house without totally busting on something, without running into a door, without tripping over the dishwasher, all that. So they, they 
we'll see them, they'll close their eyes, they'll stick their, their hands out, and, and we know as most games go with our children that for about three and a half minutes, it's going to go really well and they're going to have fun. And then they're going to run into something and there will be crying involved, and it's just a matter of uh, time. So they, you know, they start wandering down the hall and eventually they run into something. Because the game is, you, when you're blinded like that, the, the, the danger is that you might run into something, right? You might run into a door, you might run into something. Paul is saying that we have a problem that our hearts are veiled, that they are blindfolded, and our danger is not that we might run into something. Our danger is that we might miss something, that we will miss something, that because of our blindfold, we will miss Christ. We will miss life. We will miss God himself. And so Paul is speaking about what it takes to come and bring the gospel to people. And he knows, and people are pointing to his ministry and saying, what about the people that don't believe? He knows that it is very hard for people to actually change their minds about who Christ is and come to faith. Not only very hard, he will say spiritually it is impossible without the intervening grace of God. But the truth is, it's actually hard for us to change our beliefs about anything. I read an article um, this uh, weekend about... um, it had to do a little bit with, uh, you know, very uh, elementary level neuroscience, it mentioned, and talk about this concept called motivated reasoning. As scientists study the brain, you know, we, we, they point out that we kind of have this sense in general that we're, most of us, we're pretty logical people. We can hear an argument logically laid out for us. We can evaluate the pros and cons, and we can make up our mind and change our mind as necessary. And what this theory of motivated reasoning says is that actually even our very reasoning process is shot through with the power of our own emotions and emotional reactions to things. In other words, there are things that, we are very, that we're sort of emotionally inclined to, and so that's going to color the way we reason through it. There are things that we are emotionally repelled by, and that's going to, that's going to shape how we respond to information that's given to us. And it's, it's echoing uh, what a famous uh, Stanford psychologist of the 50s, Leon Festinger, said. Here's what he said about us and our convictions. A man with a conviction is a hard man to change. Tell him you disagree with him and he turns away. Show him the facts and figures and he questions your sources. Appeal to logic and he fails to see your point. And what these scientists have discovered through using EEGs, I have no idea how this works, I'm just taking it on faith, but as they scan people's brains, they have found that whatever triggers an emotional reaction in the brain, that those connections in the brain travel faster than your ability to consciously think. And that means your emotional reaction got there before your logical reaction did. And all that to say there is something even in the hard wiring of who we are physically that makes it hard for us to change our minds. The author goes on and says this, The upshot, left or right, conservative or liberal, we all wear blinders in some situations. The question becomes, what can be done to counteract human nature itself? And you see, scientists are just pointing at, they use actually the context of the article is talking about political beliefs and how hard they are to change. Pointing at the way we are wired to say, even physically, there is something that makes it very hard for us to change. But Paul goes one step further. He says it's not only in your biological wiring, there is something in the wiring of who you are spiritually as a person that we have blinders on, that we have a veil on, that does not want to see the reality of who Christ is and who God is, and that something has to be done with that veil. Now, Paul, Paul makes an interesting move here in, way, in, in how he talks about the power of that veil and what lies behind it. 
Because there are places in Paul where Paul speaks very directly about our personal responsibility for our own hardness of heart. Let me give you an example. In in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, he says this, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Okay, what he's saying in Romans is he's building this argument saying, we inherently, as people created in God's image, know that God exists, and that he is powerful, but... Because of our sin, because of our, the bentness of who we are, we repress it. We try to push it down. We try to stuff that knowledge down. He's saying we are morally responsible for our blindness. And Paul talks about that in many, way, in many places. But here, he takes a different angle on it in our passage. Do you see what he points to as far as what is veiling us here? Look in... Um, Uh, Look in verse 4 with me. He says, in their case, the case of those who don't trust Christ, he says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. He says, the God of this world. He's talking about Satan. Paul, along with everyone else in Scripture, believes that there really is a supernatural enemy that we have. And here he attributes power to that enemy that comes, and, and, and he says it's, it's as if Satan himself is, is, is holding this veil over people's eyes, over people's hearts, so that they cannot see the goodness of who Jesus is, so that they cannot turn. The implication of what he's getting at is that we, again, apart from the grace of Christ, we are all people who are veiled or who have been veiled. We all begin as unbelievers. Now, last week and, and several times in the last month, we baptized infants uh, into our church, members as, uh, as uh, covenant church members with us. And, and when we baptize infants in this case, you know, we are saying that they have incredible benefits as members of the covenant. They are growing up in a church. They are growing up with Christian parents who are going to pray with and for them. They are going to be exposed to Scripture. Uh, they are a part of the covenant promises of God who loves his people, who loves the children of uh, those who have consciously put their faith in him. So that, all of that is true. But even those infants, those children are going to have to grow up. And at some point in their life, God is going to have to pull the veil away so that they see who Christ is and turn and embrace him. You see, we begin as people who are spiritually dead. It's what Paul speaks of elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Again, another way of speaking of this enemy, Satan. The spirit who's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, Paul's getting at the fact that there is this veil over our hearts and that we have a supernatural enemy that wants it to stay there. Now, Paul, when he speaks of that, that he, he's not a dualist. As if there was this great positive power called God and this great evil power called Satan and that they were equally matched and, and uh, at war against one another and who knows how this all might work out one day. Scripture is very clear that Satan is a created entity and that his power is limited and one day he will be eradicated. Nonetheless, he is out to destroy God's good creation. Okay, so... Paul is saying, as he begins to speak of 
God's sufficiency to save. He says we start in a condition where we are veiled, where our hearts are veiled. And so we need to hear the weight of this. Paul is saying that if you hear the message of Christ and you don't believe it, that you're unwilling to commit to it, then you have been blinded by Satan. And you are in need of Christ coming in and turning on the lights. Because it is possible to understand intellectually the call of the gospel, to understand what the Bible says about uh, the fact that we are broken by sin, that we are in need of forgiveness. It's possible to understand what the Bible says about Jesus being the only way, His death for us, the only way that we can be forgiven before God. It's possible to understand that and not believe a word of it. And what He's pointing us to is the fact that we begin veiled and if we remain veiled, it is because Satan is having his way with us. The veil. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on from the veil and he begins to speak of what can lift the veil. He begins to speak of the light that breaks into darkness. Uh, if you back up a little bit in chapter 3, verse 16, a few verses ahead of where we are, you see what he says about this veil being removed. Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When one comes to Christ, the veil is taken away. When God comes and grab, grabs hold of someone's heart and life and turns them around, their eyes are opened that they might actually see that Jesus is who he says he is. They might turn to him. Not only understanding what he says, but embracing it and embracing him. That the light breaks through at God's command. And he uses a creation image here to kind of bring it, to, to, to bring it out for us. Verse 6, it says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's going back to Genesis chapter 1 where it says when God creates the world, what's the first thing he does? He says that God said, let there be light and there was light. God's power in creation that made light out of nothing to shine into a dark universe. He says that is the same power by which God speaks into the heart of an individual and says, let there be light. And the veil falls away. And Christ becomes not simply an intellectual problem to think about or to wrestle with. It becomes the beauty of God himself, a savior, not just for mankind, but for you, for me. It comes to the heart. And when Paul uses this image of light, it's resonating for him on several different levels. He's speaking of our hearts being unveiled, but it happened in a very dramatic way for Paul. If you know his story... Uh, told in the book of Acts, Paul was uh, then called Saul, and he was a persecutor of the church. He killed Christians. He hauled them off to prison. And in Acts chapter 9, as he is on the way to Damascus with the authority of the Jerusalem elders, Jewish elders, he is on the way to find Christians and to throw them into jail. And Jesus literally knocks him off his horse. He's riding along the road. Uh, this incredibly bright light appears, shining on him, blinds him, knocks him off his horse. He hears a voice from heaven that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And the reply he hears is, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul becomes blind and he's led by the hand into Damascus, where he meets Ananias, a Christian that has been prepared by God in a dream to go meet Paul. And he comes to Paul and says, Paul, God has sent me to you that you might know Christ and come to know the Holy Spirit. And he, Ananias prays for Saul and it says that something like scales fell off his eyes. The veil was removed as his eyesight was restored and his spiritual eyesight was restored. 
as he came to faith. See, when Paul speaks of light breaking through, he's got that in his mind as well, in the ways that God had done that so dramatically for him, but does so just as truly for anyone who comes to see Christ. It is God himself who turns the lights on. We're promised this in Isaiah chapter 9 in a passage that is often read at Christmas. It says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. That's what Paul is telling us. In Christ, light comes and shines and removes the veil. It's light that shines into us, but it's also light in another sense that shines around us. You know, when you're exposed to light and lit up yourself and you look around, that same light illuminates the ground around you. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. In other words, when you see the sun rise in the morning, you believe it's really there because you see it, but you also look around and you see your yard coming to life as well because by the light of the sun you see everything else also. And the same was true for Paul and the same is true for us. This light that comes in and takes away the veil that brings us to life is the light by which we see everything now. Third point here, we talked about the veil, the light. Let's talk about what the light illumines for Paul and for us. It illumines for us freedom. That's what Paul points to here. said that this light that has come into his life had come and made him into a certain kind of person and in Paul's calling, a certain kind of pastor. And he talks about this in a couple ways. First, he says that he has now, that Christ has shined this light in his life. He has now been freed to preach. Look at where he says this in verse 5. For what we proclaim, and in the Greek it's the same word for preach. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord You see, God had called him now to speak about the hope that he himself had received, to come and to preach. And look at how he does that. Look at how, as a pastor, he carries out his ministry. Uh, This is in chapter, or excuse me, verse 2. Look at the way he says he, he has been changed. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You see, he has been changed in such a way now. The light has shone in such a way. The light has come and freed him to be and preach in such a way that he can do it with absolute integrity. That's another way to sum up verse 2. He says, now, because what Christ has done, because Christ has spoken into his own heart with this hope of the gospel freely given, he can now act and preach with absolute integrity to those around him. He has renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways refuses to practice cunning, refuses to tamper with God's word. He speaks by open statement of the truth. In other words, no manipulating those he speaks to. No gimmicks. No watering down the truth. No bait and switch for people just so they'll hopefully believe the message. You see, Paul is saying, because it is God who comes and tears back the veil, he says, we, as people who bring God's hope to others can do that with absolute integrity. We don't have to manipulate people. We don't have to try to finagle so they'll hopefully hear what we have to say. Now, Paul was also one who was very savvy. He was very uh, winsome in his attempts 
to speak the gospel, to understand the culture, to speak in ways that people would understand. Okay, so he, he does have that in mind. But he goes on and he says, There's one, it's one thing to be winsome, it's another thing to be manipulative. And he says, we have renounced all of that. We don't have to live in that anymore. We are freed from that now because it is God who saves. Because he is the one who has the power. And so for Paul as a pastor, he can say, I can step into what God calls me to. And I can tell people about Jesus because he's going to do his work. I can trust him. Not my own eloquence, not my own power. My open statement of the truth. It also means for him that he doesn't have to pull any punches. That he can also say the hard things to people. As he challenges them with God's word. Because he knows that it is the Holy Spirit who is at work. The one who comes to comfort and convict and change. And so he can be faithful. He is freed to preach. And for us as well. Most of us not called to preach in the pulpit. But all of us called to bring the hope of the gospel to others in our daily lives. Over the table at coffee. Over dinner with family. With co-workers with our friends and our neighbors, we can come and we can know that we can tell people about Jesus without having to try to manipulate them because God is at work. Because he is sufficient to save. Paul was freed to preach, but the second thing he was freed to, he was freed to serve. Look at the the second part of verse 5. What we proclaim, what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. All right, listen to what he says. He says, we don't come preach ourselves. Paul says, it's not that we are celebrities and that you need to put your faith in us. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord. But he, does, he goes on and says, there is a way in which we preach ourselves. We, pre- we preach Christ as Lord and we preach ourselves as your servants. See, Paul says, I do have a place in this. He says, I have come as a bearer of the gospel to you Corinthians to serve you, to lay my life down for you so that you would see that this gospel is true. It is Jesus who saves, but he says, as his messenger, I come as a servant. That is the garb that I put on. In other words, the proclamation of the gospel, the speaking of it, the preaching of it, the sharing of it, has to... um, come embodied in the one who brings the message. The the, the gospel comes in the flesh of someone. For Paul, as he comes as preacher and speaks the word, they see the effects of God's good work. They see the reality of God's good work in Paul's own life as he doesn't lord it over them, but as he serves them, just as he has been served by Jesus. You see, this idea of the proclaiming of the gospel and living it out, they are meant to go hand in hand with each other. And that there is something terribly wrong when the proclaiming of the gospel is not matched up with a life that shows the brightness of the gospel. Now you've got to be really careful here. He is not saying that it's simply our own good works or our own goodness that saves people. And he's not saying that at the end of the day God's mission hinges on whether or not we can be good enough Christians and can live up to the gospel well enough. But what he is saying is that those for whom God has come and grabbed hold of you, when he enables you to go speak to others, there is a right way in which our lives should match and map onto the reality of the gospel. And maybe some of you have experienced this in church settings in the past, or we've certainly read about them in in newspapers and hear about them on the news. You know, what, what is it like for a church when they have a pastor who undergoes a serious moral failure? It's devastating for a church. Why? 
Because the person that uh, folks in the church have looked up to is their pastor who they've trusted to bring God's word to them has basically gone in exactly the wrong direction. The person who has stood up and said, God can have power of your temptations. God has power to come and change your lives and yet is leading some sort of dark and hidden life at the same time. You hear those two things together and it just sends people into a tailspin. Or not just pastors. What about uh, for ourselves or those we know, what happens when we are people who are sharing the gospel with others and they look at us and they go, well, yeah, you tell me about Jesus, but you're the biggest gossip I've ever known. Or you say, you know, such, in such blatant ways, you say one thing and do another. This is not a question of us being perfect. It's a question of are our lives mapping onto the reality of the gospel. You see, those are meant to go hand in hand, the beauty of the gospel proclaimed and lived out. Paul says he has been freed not only to preach, but to serve. But then there's a third thing. And we see it in verse 1. That we have been freed to hope. See what he sees here? It says here, Therefore, having this ministry, this ministry of the reconciliation of God, this ministry of God's powerful work to come and change lives, he says, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Having this ministry, not for Paul because his past life had been so stellar, it was anything but that. Paul having this ministry, not because he was an eloquent speaker, he tells us elsewhere that he was not. Paul says, I have this ministry, I've been called into it by God's mercy. God gave me what I didn't deserve when he called me to this. And the same is true for all of us. God has given us what we did not deserve when he brought us to faith and when he calls all of us into this mission of bringing the gospel and hope to those around us. He says, because it was given to me by mercy, not by my effort, because it was all about God's mercy from the start, he says, we don't lose hope. We don't lose hope. This was God's deal from first to last. And Paul, who could face, along with the successes, setback after setback, could say, I don't lose hope because it is God who is sufficient to save and he will do his work. 2,000 years later, we are reading his words that he sent to these Corinthian people to encourage them that they too, that we too, might be a people who hope, who take heart, who remember that God is at work and that God is sufficient to save. Okay, let me just tie it up with this. What would it mean for us individually and as a church to think, you know, God really is sufficient to save, not just over there, but right here. And God really is sufficient to save, not, not just you know, that person over there living their life out by their neighbors, but really right here on my block as well. That God really is sufficient to save, uh, not just in that office, but in, in my office. God is sufficient to save, not only in that family over there, but in my own family as well. Are we going to be willing to believe that? Are we going to be willing to be people like Paul who bank on that? Not because of we are so stellar, but because God is sufficient. He has all that is needed to remove the veil. And it is always, he is always the one who does it. He has done it in your life. He can do it in the lives of those around you as well. Will we expect that? Or will we essentially look at God and say, you know, I believe it in theory, but I'm not going to believe it here. Not for this person. Not for my neighborhood. I'm not going to believe that we could be a church that could really be that. As we, as a church, head into a, a time of transition ahead, it's a time to stop and reflect about who we are as a church. 
Are we going to believe this to be true for us as a church? That God would really use us, this group of people, look around, y'all sitting in the pew, to bring the hope of the gospel to Williamsburg and beyond. Do you really believe he would do that? He is sufficient to save. And that is a question to be asking and praying through. Now, the other part of application for this, as you pray for God to send and provide the next right pastor for this church, you need to pray that he will be the kind of man who is described here. One who has renounced manipulation in disgraceful ways, one who trusts in the sufficiency of God to save, one who will endeavor to lead a ministry of absolute integrity, trusting in the grace and mercy of God. Need someone who, with Paul, is going to be able to stand and proclaim to you all that God has to tell us in his word for the good of his people. Not to be afraid to speak the truth, not to try to spin it so it sounds more, uh, it sounds less difficult than it is in the places that sound difficult. Certainly not to spin it so that it sounds like anything other than the scripture telling us again and again how desperately we need Christ and how sufficient he is for us. God is sufficient to save, sufficient for us as a congregation, sufficient calling the next pastor here sufficient in the mission that he would do here it is his deal and by his gift we get to be a part of it and he is sufficient for us let's pray